Let's humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you at this special time, your day, a day we can focus on you, a day that we can learn more about you, learn more about your word so that we can accurately teach it to the others who have the same desire. We pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll bless this gathering, that you'll be with us then, that the word might go out unhindered. Pray also for those that are seeking healing, those that have a special need, that you would be their Yahweh Rapha. We know that we can count on you for all things, and we also know there are many hurting. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll help them. And as we have heard, we prepare for the coming spring feast. We pray that you'll help each of us be ready for that time so we have no excuses that we can say, I'm going to honor my Heavenly Father as he's commanded me. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you'll bless us, guide us the rest of this service in this day. In Yahshua's name, hallelujah. You may be seated. Marge and I um, were at a checkout of a local grocery store, and the checker noticed the name on our ministry um, membership card, and she said, do you believe in the Trinity? You know, typically that is a litmus test question to whether you're considered part of the heretical fringe or you're an uh, acceptable Trinitarian. But having been a JW, she agreed with our answer, because they don't either. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. In fact, the uh, Trinity doctrine directly contradicts the scriptures, eight ways to, to Sabbath, and uh, you can, it doesn't make any sense, which I want to show today. In fact, I want to I bust a lot of myths today. Uh, that you hear in churchianity. Uh, I'm really aiming this at the new inquirer who wants to know what we're all about and how come we're different from his church. Well, we're going to talk about a few things today of uh, what uh, the churches teach that uh, can't be supported in Scripture and how do we know how to answer those that have the questions. The passage of John, 1 John 5, 7 to 8 is the celebrated verse they'll point to, and there aren't very many they can point to, alleging that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one individual in a triune deity. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three agree in one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. See, there you got it. And you say, well, how about this? The NIV says that the three are in agreement, not that they are one. And uh, if, you, if you look at it further, and this is what you got to do, you got to dig deeper. You know, we just don't, our faith is not surface faith, it's not superficial. And neither is our study. we got to go deep. A much larger problem is that the passage is missing in all except one of the 5,400 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. It only appears one time. Now, that should raise a flag. In fact, the one that it does appear in didn't come along until the invention of the printing press in the 15th century first appeared in some Latin manuscripts, but not even in the best manuscripts of the Vulgate can you find this passage. So what happened? How did it end up in our King James and a few other, uh, other uh, translations? This means that neither Yahshua nor the apostles ever taught it. And there is one proof of truth. Does Yahshua teach it? Does Yahshua support it? Does his disciples teach it? Do they support it? And do they live it? That's the one I always back up on. If that isn't in there, it's questionable. In fact, it's probably more than questionable. The other verse that some like to show, a trinity, is Matthew 28, 19. Now, just like this one, I should mention, 
the words in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and they all, all three are, uh, that bear witness in the earth. So that part was added, by the way. That's not in the original. The original says, for there are three that bear record, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So I guess you're making people out of spirit, water, and blood because that's what the Trinity is. Three people, three persons. And they agree in one, it says. They agree in one. They're not one. All right. But anyway, uh, look it up sometime. You'll find that's exactly what a good study Bible will tell you, especially uh, the RSB. So... If you want more information, uh, see the RSB footnote and uh, also uh, 1 John 5, 7 to 8 and see what it says. The other verse, as I was saying, Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, see, there it is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, we get that question a lot during times of baptism. The Jerusalem Bible indicates Matthew 28:19 was added liturgically. It became a church saying, a church, something they recite, but wasn't in the original. But if it is legitimate, why did none of the five baptisms in the New Testament ever use that formula? It was always in Yahshua's name when they baptized. They never used that formula, so something's very suspect there. And, of course, we can prove that it, uh, it certainly wasn't there. It was always in Yahshua's singular name. Although it's, it's one of the weakest of Christianity's doctrines, the Trinity is, ironically, the one belief that most Christians will use to see if you're a believer or not. Isn't that amazing? It's the weakest that I've found, but that's the test doctrine. When we were on television, we were very careful not even to approach that subject because we've been kicked off immediately. That's the test doctrine of churchianity. We've been kicked off. So we didn't even go there. But uh, like one guy says, I can tell you guys are kind of holding back. (laughs) Yeah, we're holding back, all right. Uh, We want to be on a little longer anyway. So anyway, um, if, if you know its history, you'll know that the Trinity doctrine itself was born under very contentious circumstances back in uh, the original the uh, Roman church. You'll know that there was not a happy time trying to hammer out who the Father, Son, and Spirit were. And that was the first council of Nicaea. The main reason it was called by Constantine to find out who Yasha was. Was he deity? Was he just human? What, what, what was he? Was he, you know, was he part one or part the other? And it was the a hot debate at the time. The International Standard Bible and Sec- Now here, think about this. There's another test for, for a myth. If it were plain and simple in Scripture, why did it cause so much angst for so many years? And people still didn't believe it. Constantine himself flip-flopped back on it. He wasn't sure. And yet, it is the the test doctrine now. Solid, no-nonsense test doctrine. It it doesn't make any sense. International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, we call the ISBI, says under Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is purely a revealed doctrine. Revealed. In other words, you can't read it in the Bible. It's revealed from on high or something. That is to say, it embodies a truth which has never been discovered and is indiscoverable by natural reason. Now, this reference has no axe to grind. They're just trying to set forth, as as an encyclopedia, the facts. The facts. He said it, it, it can't be found by natural means. Natural reason. With all the searching, man has not been able to find out for himself the deepest things of G.D. Accordingly, ethnic thought has never attained a Trinitarian concept of Elohim, nor does any ethnic religion present in its representations of the divine being 
any analogy to the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, that pretty much says it all. It, out, it isn't even out there, is what it's saying. No support. If it's provable and indiscoverable, then how can it be called a truth? My truth is in Scripture that I can read. Why would Yahweh say, okay, um, we're going to invent or just talk about a doctrine that uh, you know, I can't show you in Scripture, but the prophets can't, none of the rest can show you, but that's going to be a very important, a fundamental doctrine for the church. And by the way, it didn't become that way till recently. It, uh, anyway, that's another subject. But uh, Constantine called this Nicene Council, and uh, it, was, uh, it was back and forth between Arius and Athan- Athanasius. Uh, I mean, they back- basically came fisticuffs, and uh, I think it was Athanasius that was even um, kicked out of the country for a while, and he was brought back in. I mean, it, it was uh, unbelievable. A confused Christian wrote on a website, the Bible presents G-O-D as one G-O-D, Deuteronomy 6.4, but then speaks of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28.19, which we've just exploded, that passage. How these two truths harmonize is inconceivable to the human mind. <laughs> Does Yahweh give us something that we can't figure out, that we, we, we don't know what to do with? It's inconceivable into the human mind. This person wrote, when we attempt to understand the inscrutable, we will always fail in varying degrees. So in other words, it makes absolutely no sense. Three and one, one and three, yet separate, yet equal, and Yahshua blows that away in many different ways. My father is greater than I. Uh, my father knows the end. I don't even know the day or the hour. I mean, it goes on and on. How, how can you develop a doctrine like this that contradicts so many passages in Scripture that say just the opposite? The person should first have read what the Roman church itself said about the Trinity. Quote, For nowhere in the Old Testament do we find any clear indication of a third person. Mention is often made of the spirit of the LORD, but there is nothing to show that the spirit was viewed as distinct from Yahweh himself. By the way, they used a J, but they were close. At least they didn't say Yehovah. The term is always employed to signify G-O-D considered in his working, whether in the universe or in the soul of man. The matter seems to be correctly summed up by Epiphanius when he says, the one G-D head is above all declared by Moses and the twofold personality of father and son is strenuously asserted by the prophets. Catholic Encyclopedia under Trinity, page 41. 49, I'm sorry. It's amazing. They even admit it. The ones that came up with basically this doctrine admit that it's, it's not there. It's not provable. There's only two. I had one guy explain, uh, and I like the definition. He said there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is their activity. I like that because that's what Yahweh used the Spirit for, to do his work. The Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. It was an active force that brought the seas and everything together. And it says that we're, the, the whole universe is held together by the power of the Spirit. Yahweh commands at both ends of the Bible, not to add to or take away from what is in the word. It is the first thing that's usually done, however, when someone wants to make up their own doctrines. They add to the word. They take away from the word. Well, that's not really what it says, or whatever it is that they do to remove it. Those who manufacture their own worship, so that they, can sell, they themselves can be a, you know, a piece of the religious pie, and there's a lot of them out there, and that's been the case all the way from Yahshua on. There's always these heretics running around trying to, you know, like Simon Magus, trying to make a name for himself. Let me, by the Holy Spirit, just, I want to, you know, I want to be, I want to be somebody too. That's basically where a lot of this comes from. People want to be somebody too. Today I want to show other tried and true biblical methods you can use, you yourself can use when you talk to somebody else, to bust other myths 
out there. There are so many. I couldn't. We'd be here all day, all night, and on into next week if we covered all of them. But I've chosen as my case study the common trinity because it's so pervasive and it's so important to churchianity. And it's so not there in the word. The first principle of myth-busting is go back and trace the history of the belief or teaching. Where did it come from? Who developed it? Why did they develop it? If it's of Yahweh, there's your answer. Ask diagnostic questions. What are its origins? How did it develop? And why? That's what you got to do on many of these teachings. And you'll find if you do, they're man-made. If its origins are in the Roman church, then you can just forget it. Drop it by like a hot potato because it probably isn't accurate. That's sad to say, but that's how it turned out. The church at Rome is the most effective manufacturer of myths there is. And for 2,000 years, people have been duped by so many different doctrines. Heaven, hell, ever-burning hell, child uh, child uh, baptism, and it just goes on and on, purgatory, and on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a whole lot out there. Not to run down the people. I'm talking about the leadership. It's always the leadership that's the problem, whether it's the Jewish leadership in Yasha's time, whether it's leadership today. People are just going along because that's what they were told. You know, you can't, uh, you can't fault them if they don't know. However, if they're mind is pricked if their heart is pricked and want to know and then don't do it well then they got to be responsible for it so anyway Yahweh's word is what makes any teaching legitimate not church councils or church tradition and yet that simple thing doesn't matter to many people who don't want to look anywhere else from what they've been told 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of Yahweh. It's profitable for doctrine. That's teaching. That's all it is. Doctrine is just teaching. For reproof, for correction, to change our ways, to do what's right, what Yahweh wants us to do. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of Elohim may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Tell that to Calvin. Tell that to Luther. It's not just faith alone. It's good works. We're rewarded according to our works. Revelation tells us that. But if you have to have works, I mean, you've got to do something, and you don't want to do anything. More and more, advocates today are like those who see history as something to fiddle with and to rewrite, as they're doing so much today. Even of our country's history, they want to rewrite it, make it fit their current specific ideology. The political correctness movement that replaces biblical standards of morality has been a big influence on our culture, and it's, it's more and more all the time. The commandments are only suggestions, multiple choice, and not truisms that have stood solidly through the millennia, by the way, but throw them out and see what happens. So they proceed to change that history, and when they can't, they just ignore the history book. Don't even teach history. A lot of that's going on now, too, in the schools. They don't even teach history especially not American history with the, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, when I was up working here, uh, one of the reps came in and uh, she was from a very liberal part of St. Louis and uh, she made some disparaging remark about some of the founding fathers. And I kind of looked, I never thought that someone would say that. <laughs> yeah, she meant it. They, they don't like the Founding Fathers. They have an ethic that they don't agree with, so they just... It's more and more, brethren, more and more. But when it comes to the Word, it's even even more than that. So uh, just get prepared. So they, uh, they like to ignore the history. They like to ignore, ignore what brought you know, us to where we are. Um, they make the apostles just apologists for the church and its doctrines. At its most basic level, a legitimate belief, one that's in Yahweh's favor or practice, must arise from the word and not from outside the word. It's incredible that so many major beliefs and teachings 
out there have no basis in Scripture or they have a basis in a twisted Scripture. They force fit into something like uh, Sunday, Sunday worship. You know, I talk about uh, the Trinity as one of the few one of the greatest, I should say, of, of doctrines that there's no proof for. Sunday's another big one. Sunday, think about it. Where did it come from? Yahshua's resurrection. Ask number one, what, is, what does resurrection day have to do with a worship day? Number two, was he resurrected on Sunday? No, he wasn't. End of the Sabbath. He was already gone by Sunday morning. I'm going to talk about all the trappings that go along with it. That's a whole other story. Uh, number three, we're commanded to keep the seventh day, not the first. I mean, we could go on and on. There's no support for it. And yet, 99% of the churches out there worship on Sunday. From ever-burning hellfire, going to heaven, immortal soul, Xmas, Easter, once saved, always saved, faith alone for salvation, New Testament only, antinomianism, etc., etc., etc. These are the things you'll find out there being taught. All of these beliefs were not part of Yahweh's commands or Yahshua's teachings. But here they are, the major thing taught. Take the super holiday of Xmas. Almost nothing about it is legitimate. Nothing about it, either the secular side of it or the religious side. Of course, the pagan trappings were were added, but not even the Bible story of Yahshua's birth is correct as we found out a few weeks ago in Elder Randy's message. It's December 25th. Date is a myth and is not the birth of the Messiah or anywhere close to it. So right off the bat, we got an error, a major error, a big error. Uh, That's not there. Uh, He wasn't even, his birthday wasn't even observed in the first 300 years of the church. Not until the 4th century, after his resurrection. Check the history. It's there. You don't have to go very far to see the truth. He never met or even saw Santa Claus or St. Nick. So what are they doing hijacking his day? Think about it, as Brother Jose would say. Think about it. No evidence exists of the actual number of wise men even. They had three gifts, but how many there were? We don't know. Doesn't say. And they came to a house to see the toddler, up to two years of age or older, maybe, but not a manger. They weren't there at the manger. They presented royal gifts to the toddler, as you always did when you came before a king. That's why they came. They heard he was to be a king, so they brought royal gifts. And they passed it to him. Maybe his family, but not to each other. The historical facts are not all documented in the New Testament, and tradition has it all twisted up. But we know these things are wrong. We know that the Christmas is not in the Word. All the common Xmas rites are steeped in sun worship, Holidays of the pagan Romans in their Saturnalia and Bromalia and their sun worship. And much of it has spun off from Nordic worship. The trees, evergreen trees, the Yule log, mistletoe, that all came from Northern Europe. That got blended into it too over time. So... You know, it all boils down to sun worship. If you want to take it all the way back to the source, it's always about sun worship, Babylonian sun worship. That's where it comes from, S-U-N, of course. It isn't difficult to authenticate what we have said. Any encyclopedia, newspaper, honest website at this time of year or any time will show that this is true. Thousands of pieces of evidence are out there. Bottom line, most of the culture will blow it all off anyway because they just don't care. They don't care. They love their man-made traditions. They love the culture that bore them. Their religious views, if they have any, don't impact their lives anyway. 
I don't want to be pessimistic about it, but I want to be truthful about it. If they have any convictions, it doesn't impact their lives to any meaningful way anyway. Most don't live the Bible. They set their standards by the world, whatever the world says, the way the world dresses, the way way the world does its thing. That's what they do. That's where they set their standards. If the Bible meant more to them, they do a lot more checking into it to see if they're following it right, see if their church is right. Matthew 15, 9. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. If they were more devoted to Yahweh, things would be a whole lot different in our world today. They would ignore some of these trivia and be more seriously concerned as they see the end approaching and the world going down uh, to Hades in a handbasket. They'd cry out Jeremiah-like against the moral abominations that the sickening abominations like we just learned this week about end of the end of the birth abortions made uh, signed into law by the governor of New York and I I guess Vermont and others are thinking about following suit that's a baby that's about to be born like the next day and they murder it and it's okay I just hope the courts reverse that If not the state court, maybe the Supreme Court. You set your standards by what the kids want. They want Xmas. They want Ishtar. They want Halloween. All right, let them have it. I don't want to deny them that. I could not disappoint or offend any of my family by not indulging these things. I might make them mad. Keep the feast. That won't go very well in my family. I don't want to make them mad. Who are you really making mad? Think about that. The one that really matters. How about if you'd make an example of yourself, then have the family drawn into the truth instead of just backing off and not even try and set your standard by the world? How about that? I know strong people who have brought their family into the faith because they were strong. And they said, no, I'm going to follow Yahweh. And so the family has to make a decision. What are they going to do? Ostracize you? Or investigate? Learn more about the truth? How are you going to do that if you back off? But it's what I've always done, and I can't stop now, which you could call the runaway train defense. It's already in motion. There's nothing I can do about it. Oh, yeah, there is. (laughs) Do you think everybody called in the, the scriptures was allowed to keep on going in their lifestyle, or did they have to change? Well, of course they had to change. All the disciples had to change. They even dropped their nets and started following Yahshua. Imagine that, their whole livelihood. That's what we have to do sometimes. This job won't let me off on Sabbath. I drop it like a fisherman's net. And I go on. Yahweh will find me a way, some other way. Never mind Jeremiah 10. Yahweh says, don't learn the way of the heathen. The masses don't reflect the man of Yahweh that Paul wrote of in 2 Timothy 3.16. So Yahweh's word is not their righteousness. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the philosophy today. Tomorrow we'll die. But never fear. Yahweh is taking notes and responding appropriately. He'll, he'll get his, uh, his comeuppance. There will be a reckoning one day, and I hope people repent. I hope they come to the point when things get really rough that they turn to him. That's my prayer. Psalm thirty-three, thirteen. Yahweh looked from heaven he beholds all the sons of men. Couple that with Luke 8, 17, when Yahshua said, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Now that's a sobering statement, isn't it? The record of your life is all going to be shown. It's going to be out there. Yahweh's going to look at it. We already knows, he already knows it, but uh, nothing. you can't hide anything from him. 
That's a sobering, uh, serious thing. You can run, but you can't hide anything from him. There were 21 major ecumenical councils in the church through the years, all the way up to the Middle Ages, called by popes and used to hammer out church teaching on a variety of issues. I always said, why can't they just go to the scriptures and look at it? Because you got somebody over here who says, no, 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 that's not the way it says. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to get, get a committee together and decide our doctrine. That's what happened. A committee decided the doctrine. So these uh, engines of error were responsible for many heresies throughout the centuries. Watch out for what those councils produced almost always is that off scripture. Almost always is that a man-made teaching. Like the Apostles' Creed and some of these others where Yahshua ascended into hell. They think he went down and talked to the... You've got to explain that. It's, oh, well, he was talking to the lost people down there. You just, you just shot your argument. They're lost. They're not going to be redeemed in a hellfire, which doesn't exist anyway. So... Um, you know, yeah, there's the lake of fire, but there's not ever burning hellfire. Uh, new doctrines are being advocated by those who are seeking provenance. No matter what the matter was, the council will be called, placed before it, and a voice vote taken, and uh, that's what we're going to believe in the church. Doctrine by committee. That's dangerous. Had there been no council, no conferences, had they just followed the scriptures, it would have been completely different. We'd see a different religious uh, environment out there. We'd see one that's closer to the truth. And if people had had the backbone to stand for Yahweh's word as their guide and say, wait a minute, like some of the, like the Waldenses, the Albigenses who continue to keep the Sabbath, and they were being persecuted all the way through the woods up into Switzerland, France, they were hounded for years and slaughtered because they wouldn't accept false doctrine. They all, if they were all that way, everything would have changed. But uh, no, people weren't into it that much. They were too fearful. So the uh, true believers would not look so strange to the world if it happened. But a large part of the errors which corrupted the church grew out of heresies. Heresies that go way back, developed in the three centuries after the death of the apostles. Great changes were made in the government, the structure, and the doctrine established by Yahshua through the apostles. The Roman church left the biblical con uh, government of the Bible wholesale. Proper leadership of assemblies is given by the Spirit in Ephesians 4.1. But that was abandoned. They followed the hierarchy of the Roman government church and Roman government uh, hierarchy. If the church now patterned its government after the pagan Roman hierarchy, this is what we got. We got one man, the bishop of Rome, who took prominence eventually and became above all the other bishops. And uh, so what was originally, you know, when Paul had a problem, he went to what? He went to Jerusalem, talked with James and some of the others, and, and say, what do you think? Uh, do they have to become Jews again to become a believer? No. They said, no, you don't have to. And so he, you know, that's how they did it. In, and they call that the first church council, by the way. But it's nothing like what came later, the first one that really came. But anyway, uh, they collaborated together. They didn't have one man. We had, uh, I know in our early gatherings, early assembly, we had the, uh, the minister there use James as being an example of one man directing the whole thing. Well, James just said, he was, he was prominent, but he wasn't the only one. He just says, well, my summation, my decision is, and this guy took it to mean he ruled. He took, no, no, no. That sounds like a, a Roman teaching to me, but it wasn't that way. Those who uh, converted and uh, felt Yahweh's truth pretty much ended go going a different way, a different direction. 
but that's not how the majority happened. As we read in the history of the church through the ages, one of my favorite books by Robert Brumbach, he goes through all of these things, all of the doctrines and so forth. Human philosophy and paganism crept into the church and it became difficult for the church to preserve the simplicity of the gospel, he says, the purity of the worship and the form of government that existed in the church in the beginning. In the beginning, see, it wasn't that hierarchy we see now. New doctrines were formed by combining human philosophy and paganism with Christianity to make it more palatable to the pagan converts they were trying to bring in. With these changes, the church became an apostate organization, wholly unlike the beginning with the apostles in Acts. The contrast was night and day. New doctrines don't come easily. They come through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of hammering out, a lot of difficulties, even violence. There was much infighting among these leaders. People think that all this just happened so smoothly, seamlessly. We just went right from the apostles into Sunday worship and Easter. They have no clue. History is important. History tells us a lot. Okay, today, how can we seek and destroy false teachings in our own lives? How can we identify what is right and what is wrong? How do we do that? How do we uh, come to uh, terms with what Yahweh says? Here are some tried and true procedures you can use. Beware of the one verse wonder, what I call sola versola, my own uh, Anglo-Latin working there. Sola versola, meaning creation of an entire doctrine from one verse. Example, a Trinitarian website says that Yahshua was always been, has always been G-O-D. They support it by one verse. John 8.58, Yahshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. That means he was Yahweh. Huh? Is that what it says? Now, often the sola versola is allied with the lepus maximus. In, the case, in this case, they claim that the phrase before Abraham existed, that I exist, means he was always with the Father from the beginning. A huge leap. A huge leap in a, a baseless, to a baseless conclusion, all from a single verse. And it happens all the time. So remember the Lepus Maximus doing alongside the Sola Versola. Translation, watch for a giant leap based on a single verse. Those who don't harmonize the whole Bible do it all the time. Here's another example. Lepus Maximus from Sola Versola that we just received in the mail. Regarding the rapture, a man's friend brought up 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For Yahweh hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our master, Yahshua Messiah. The friend says, wrath means tribulation. Oh, we're not appointed to tribulation. Well, that flies in the face of a number of passages that say the saints will be going through tribulation. So that's not a rapture. But the other thing is, that's not what that word wrath means. Look it up. He wanted to know, is this guy right? So, we will be taken out of the world before the tribulation period. The friend, he really, he needs an RSB where he can look up the Greek for wrath. It is orge, orge, and it means any natural impulse, desire, or disposition. It came to mean anger as a violent passion. In other words, believers are not to go to wrath against somebody. They're not to be angry over things, to be driven by knee-jerk reactions, especially anger. That's a far cry from end-time tribulation. But people come up with this stuff. Then there is the altering of Scripture to match your own belief, which is the versa twistola. You must worship Yahshua to be saved, said one man. 
He used a single verse, Romans 10.9. Quote, that if you shall confess with your mouth the master Yahshua and shall believe in your heart that Yahweh has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So from Versa Twistola, he's saying that you've got to worship Yahshua. Where does the verse tell us to worship Yahshua? Confess does not mean worship. It means to assent to a covenant with Yahshua. Neither does believe in your heart mean to worship him. So you've got to analyze. You've got to, you've got to look deeper and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, back up, because they're going to throw another verse at you, if they have one, and here they don't. But you've got to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, back up. I want you to answer this. You've got to keep doing that, because when they don't have an answer, they'll fly off into something else to divert your attention or to change the subject. We can do much better than twisting scripture. We can go right to the Savior himself. Matthew 4.10, Yahshua from his own mouth told Hasatan and at the same time sent the clear message to us to worship only the Father. Then said Yahshua unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship Yahweh your Elohim, and him only shall you serve. He told Satan, Don't even worship me. Worship Yahweh. For the last several Feasts of Tabernacles, we hold morning seminars on different things like this, the twisted doctrines and so forth. Uh, and those who don't attend the feasts are not only uh, remiss in fulfilling the command that Yahweh gave us, but they're missing out on truth, serious, important truth. So a lot of them just end up calling us. I have a question about this verse. We answered that at the feast. I wish you were here. You'd really understand it. But I don't, I don't understand why the feast is such a hard thing to comply with if they comply with the Sabbath. You know, you got to do the whole enchilada. Looks like a, a few more uh, we'll look at and apply more principles of myth-busting made easy. The doctrine of heaven and hell. Wow, that's a huge one. I know it is extremely comforting to the grieving family to believe that their loved one is smiling down at them during the funeral and beyond. I know that gives them comfort, and I understand that. But where is it in Scripture? Let's face the facts. The Bible says the dead are dead. It says their thoughts perish. They cannot praise, quote, in the grave. They're gone. They're not sentient anymore. They're gone. Their mind doesn't work anymore. It's gone. Not until Yahshua raises them again. Yahshua said, no man has ascended to heaven in John 3.13. Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, 15.22 that we get life again at the resurrection. How can they be up there looking down at the funeral if they haven't even been resurrected yet? How does that happen? Even Old Testament Daniel knew it in 727 that the saints are given the kingdom under heaven. He didn't say in heaven, under heaven. There's three heavens. There's the, the wind, there's outer space, and then where Yahweh lives. There's three heavens. But he said they're under the heavens, not in heaven. That means on earth, as other passages will verify. Romans 5.10 is one of them. Saints will reign on the earth. A myth-busting principle here is to take the sum total of all the verses dealing with that subject and go through them and see if there's a contradiction. You either have something wrong in your understanding or something misapplied by somebody about a verse, or maybe the verse itself is not quite understandable and you've got to go to the Hebrew and the Greek. What about hell? since I brought it up. There are three words for hell in uh, the Bible. The Old Testament, it's the Hebrew sheol. New Testament, it's Hades. It means the exact same thing. It means the grave. And then there's Tartaru for the fallen angels, and we're not going to deal with that because it has nothing to do with us anyway. All of them mean grave, sheol and Hades. Nothing more. Nothing more than that. Exclusively, that's it. If you have someone who has a penchant 
for arguing, explain these terms to him or her, and then apply them to their argument. Don't let them try to wiggle out of it by throwing another verse at you. Bring them back to the Hebrew and the Greek words translated grave from Sheol or Hades. And they will eventually drag out the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16 and say, see, the rich man is tormented in hellfire. First, this is a parable. A parable is a made-up story to make a principal point. It's a made-up story. Is it true or not? We don't know. But if it's a parable, it's just a story, okay? It shows that there is no chance of repentance after you die. That was the whole point of the parable. The rich man's laying there. He sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he says, Oh, I need a little water for my tongue. Not in flames. He just wanted water because he's in agony. Seeing he was left out of the promise. It's too late now. It's too late once you die. That's the whole point. It's a, in Abraham's bosom is a Hebrewism that means in the grave. So he's in the grave along with Abraham, and the church used hellfire to instill abject fear into the people who would not comply with their teachings. So if you don't. You're going to burn forever in hellfire, which is totally ridiculous and against Yahweh's nature to do that to anybody. He says, if you don't comply, you'll just be destroyed. That'll be it. You'll be destroyed. Did he, did he, uh, I take an example. Did he uh, subject Sodom and Gomorrah to ever burning, uh, uh, you know, sulfur? Did they sit there for, for weeks or months agonizing and burning sulfur? No, he just, Wipe them out. And I, I believe, you know, because of uh, uh, the, uh, how sulfur works, once it burns, it gives up with the sulfur dioxide, which is very poisonous. I think these people died in the fumes before they were burned up. I think Yahweh has that much mercy. But anyway, um, that's, they use hellfire to show that, uh, you know, we're all going to burn forever if we don't accept the church's teachings. But uh, I, I, you know, I... Uh, Sorry, I, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't agree, not, not according to Scripture. Exodus 6, 3, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh was I not known to them. Don't fall into the trap of solo verse solo. Look at all the evidence. Look at everything that you can find on that subject. Something doesn't fit when his name is found 65 times in Genesis alone. And they'll say, they didn't know Yahweh's name back then. Really? Get your Bible out. Preferably get your RSB out. There's notes in there explaining this stuff. So that we don't have to go through it again when you call us up and say, I don't understand this. Do you have an RSB? Uh, No. Hey, it's real cheap. (laughs) And it'll answer so many questions. 7,000 notes will answer a lot of your questions. Please get one. Eve knew Yahweh's name in Genesis 4.1. Men in general to begin to call on the name Yahweh after Enos, the son of Seth in uh, Genesis 4.26. What do you mean they didn't know Yahweh's name? Abraham called on Yahweh's name in Genesis 12.8. Abram lifted up his hand in praise to the name Yahweh, Genesis 14.22. And it uses Yahweh's name, by the way. Abraham built an altar to his name, Genesis 22. Even Abimelech, a polytheistic king of Gerar, knew Yahweh's name. He uses Yahweh's name in Genesis 24. Even a pagan knows his name. Jacob heard it revealed in Genesis 28, 13 in a dream, etc., etc., etc. People say, you know, the old comment, well, you can't pronounce Hebrew anyway. You can't pronounce his name. It has no vowels. Yeah, it has vowels. They just aren't shown. But the Hebrew reader can read it. No problem. Uh, They know uh, what his name was and is. And they, you know, go over there and say G-O-D. doesn't bat an eye. You use Yahweh's name and, you know, the Jews know his name. And they're, you say, use Yehovah. They're not going to back up. Doesn't mean anything to them. It's a false name. 
you say Yahweh's name and they know his name and you'll get uh, a reaction. In fact, uh, a lot of you know Dom Esposito, and he was, we were on this boat out in the Sea of Galilee, and he was, all these other people on the boat, quite a few people on there, and uh, he was using Yahweh's name, and I was watching the reactions of some of the people, a lot of them were Jews, and uh, you could tell them they were twitching, and you know, they won't use his name, it's too holy, they say, um, but, uh, and then uh, there were some Hasidic Jews, I believe, in a restaurant, and we were talking pretty loud, and he used Yahweh's name, and boy, they got up and left. So tell me they don't know his name. Tell me they can't pronounce his name. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um, but that's why the Masoretes came along and vowel pointed, so that we wouldn't lose the pronunciation. How did they know what the pronunciation was to add these different vowel points? How did they know that? Because they know Hebrew. You don't need the vowels. You don't even need vowels half the time in, in English. But you can't pronounce a language without vowels because vowels are pronounced with the open mouth. You can't pronounce a bunch of, of consonants with, when you can't open your mouth, you know? Like, let's say, check disc. That's how you'd talk if you didn't have vowels. You have to have vowels. Anyway, obviously they, they had vowels. Anyway, um, they didn't understand what Yasha was, was uh teaching, and they don't understand a lot of what we teach today. They just, they don't quite get it. They may have heard of certain things about the feast or the name. They may have heard it, but that's as far as they go. They don't go beyond the hearing. Many misunderstandings and just plain errors of the church are cleared up in a good study Bible, especially one that goes back to the Hebrew and the Greek. That, that clears up, I would say, 75% of the problem. Just go to the RSB, uh, get the number of the word, go back to the back, check it out in the dictionary, see what that Greek word means or that Hebrew word means. Pretty, uh, pretty good because uh, oftentimes you say, wow, I didn't realize that. Now it makes sense with all the other passages. It's fine. Anyway, um, I don't know why anyone in the sacred name would not want to do that, would not want to study not want to get into the word, would not want to understand the languages, because that's where it's at. That's where they came from. That's where the Bible came from, these different languages, Greek and Hebrew. Uh, so, you know, and it's honest, straightforward Bible study with no ax to grind. It's just, there it is, you know. Anyway, uh, we could go on forever, but uh, again, I would just encourage everybody who doesn't have one to get an RSB. And I think you'll find that it opens up a whole new world. As one man said, you know, I read more, I should say, I, I got more out of the footnotes in your RSB than I have in 25 years of going to church. So these are the things the church won't teach you because they don't want you to know it. Because if you do, you might leave their doctrines. And that means you leave them. And, uh, you know, there's, there's ulterior motives involved in that. But anyway, uh, I hope this has helped. And may Yahweh bless you. Hallelujah.